Uh, what well, would you turn to Matthew chapter 10, and we are going to be reading from verse 5 through 33. So I'm going to say this. Would you please stand if you are able? I know it's a lengthy read. So some of us are, some of you are getting older. And so if you are able, uh, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? And before we do that, let's uh, pray for God's blessing as we read his word together. Father, we ask that you would bless this reading of your word these holy and inspired and inerrant words. Would you open our eyes that we might understand the truth of your word? Would you apply your word by the work of the the Spirit to our hearts? Would you help us to understand the instruction that Christ gave to his disciples here, particularly in the truth that they contain for us? Make us aware of that truth, O God, and make us willing to follow in our hearts, to follow that truth all the way to the end. Open the eyes of our heart, Lord. We want to see you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The word of Christ speaks to us like this. These 12 disciples, these 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belt, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or staff for the laborers deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, Let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than on that town. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for they will say, are to say, for you are to say, oh my heavens, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you'll be hated by all for my name's sake, 
but the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim from the rooftops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold? One of them, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Even the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father, who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father, who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. We are all going to find in one time in our life, and maybe you've experienced it already, you are going to find that there is going to be a defining moment in your life. And I use that word defining intentionally. A defining moment in your life where you are... I for Christ or not? It's a moment where you may be finding yourself standing alone, where you have to clearly side with Christ. You're going to face maybe in your family, will I choose Jesus when my spouse or my children won't? Maybe it's going to be at the work to follow Jesus when unethical practices become very evident. Maybe it's going to be with your your friend circle. Will I declare my love for Jesus when the opportunity comes my way? Or maybe it's going to be with, with relatives, family members. Will I share with them what is going on in my life? Who Jesus is to me? Who that he's my Lord and Savior? Or will I remain silent? And when that day comes, when the the flood of emotions kind of hits your heart, and when you're weighing whether or not you're going to stand, you've got to know that Jesus is worth it. Ryan said he saw it when he set up uh, the the Facebook Live and YouTube stuff, that there was the sermon title, Is Jesus Worth It? Is that what the title is called? Is following Jesus worth it? He said, the answer is yes. Just send us home afterwards. So the answer, but we have to actually ask that question. 
is following after Jesus actually worth it? Is he worthy of your time, your treasure, your heart, your affections? Is he worth it? And Matthew, this section of Scripture contains the, the commissioning of Jesus for his, his 12 disciples. And we read about that last week. He is sending them out and he's giving them specific troubles, uh, uh, instructions regarding the troubles that are going to be taking place when he sends them out. Now, when I really started following after Christ, I, I, I gave my life to Christ. I'd known him all my life, but the bells and whistles came on when I was a counselor at Camp Manitoba. All of a sudden, it's like, Yes, I understand. I get it. And from that point, I, I sensed a, a calling towards ministry. First, it started out in becoming a teacher. It's like, I want to I reach kids for Christ. I want to tell them and instruct them, specifically fourth and fifth graders. And then it's, I, I sensed as I, I went through that, man, I, I want to be a pastor. It started off as a youth pastor, sharing the gospel with youth and just pouring out my heart that he is worth it. And then I come into full-time vocational ministry, planting Missio Day, starting back in 2007. And, and part of all that calling and excitement was, man, nothing is going to go wrong. Man, was I stupid. I, I just kind of missed it, thinking that Jesus Fill the void. He's going to be my all in all. I can sing these songs and follow after him. And he's just going to blaze a trail for me of just joy and happiness. Folks, it's not going to be like that if you haven't figured it out yet. And here in this section, this text helps us out in two ways as we face troubles. First, it shows us just principles of how we conduct ourselves in a, in a hostile world. And secondly, it gives us seven, seven promises. Because you've got to have seven when you're, you know, it's like a holy number. Seven promises that we've got to cling to Jesus uh, when, when we following after him proves to be costly. So let me start off with just the principles. Here, here's the first one. As Jesus sends them out, it, the first principles as we go into a hostile world is that we, we've got to understand that it is critical that we are called to be like Jesus. We are transformed into a, a new kind of person when we follow after him. And so as Jesus is sending out these 12 disciples, he gives kind of a, a threefold kind of charge to them. First, he says, listen, I want you at this point in your ministry to only go to the lost sheep of Israel. Then I want you, while as you do that, I want you to proclaim. Remember, last week we talked about uh, proclaiming is this word caruso. It is one like a, a town crier who is announcing on behalf of the king the good news. So they are to proclaim that the kingdom of heaven is actually at hand. It's right here. And thirdly, the third thing they're supposed to do is they are to alleviate, to relieve the suffering of the people by healing and casting out demons. So this should sound kind of familiar because this is exactly the same exact ministry that Jesus did. We've already heard him say, repent. For the kingdom of heaven is near. 
It's at hand. And we, we read last week that Jesus' ministry involved healing every disease and healing every affliction. That's what Jesus was about. And later on in Matthew, Jesus will say that he has been sent to the nation of Israel. And the point of all this, I think, as I'm studying it, the point is pretty clear. Jesus is sending his disciples to do what he does. That's what Jesus is about. He's sending out his disciples to do what he does. And that's why they are called disciples. They are, their role is to be like him, to serve him, to preach like him. And he commissions his, his disciples to go out into this hostile culture to be like him. And so in the midst of all the extra stuff that we load onto Christianity and Christian ministry, it is good to be reminded that the goal, the simple goal for every single one of us is to be like Jesus. That is our goal. And there are all kinds of implications about what does Jesus look like. We could talk about his character, his person, his compassion. What is his heart, his deepest heart really look, look like? We could talk about how he spoke in, in public manners, how he spoke against the religious institution of the day, how he came along, the sinners and the saints. But for now, I just want you to really understand that that is the simplest goal for us in ministry. As we are sent out into a hostile culture, the thing that we are called to do is to be like Christ. To be like Him. Here's the second thing. We are called to be gracious. Our, our text says that you received without paying. Give without pay. Jesus reminds them that absolutely everything that they have, and this is a good reminder for you too, everything that they have, they received from him. Every gift, every gift is from him. He wants them to understand that everything that they have came to them by a gift of grace. And the result is, should be, if you have received these things, everything you've received without payment. In other words, you have, you have not paid up to get these gifts. You've received everything from grace, by grace. So the result should be that you are to be gracious. And verses 9 through 11, he tells them not to use their gifts to make them rich. They are not to be gospel hucksters. They are not out there to make a buck on ministry. That they were to see their ministry through the lens of grateful grace. They giving out what they have been given and blessing the homes that were worthy. So when they come into a home and they were received, they are to be the most gracious, the most generous, the most giving people in that home. Why? Because they have received everything that they have out of the grace of God. And once again, we, will, we see here this all-important mark is rooted 
in the gospel and makes you stand out clearly in the world. Because often the world, people come into relationships and they're looking to see what they can get out of the relationship. Is that not true? In the workplace. What am I getting out of this? It, it, sometimes even in dating and, and marriage relationships, it's kind of the, I'm in, but what am I going to get out of this? Graciousness, a, a willingness to give, or an extravagant grace is the, is the absolute natural outcome of those who have come to see the beauty of God's grace. When you have experienced the richness and the depth and the, the technicolor of God's grace, you cannot help but to be gracious. Here's the next one. And this one has been a learning curve for me. It's a constant learning curve. And we see it start kind of in verse 14, and then it kind of gets flushed out a little bit more in verses uh, 17 to 33. <sighs> Ministering in Jesus' name does not always fall on receptive ears. And culture, the world around us, is always receptive to gracious, loving, generous ministry. And real disciples should not be surprised when they face opposition. So Jesus basically says, leave the results to me. Can I tell you how many different church seminars and emails I receive, invitations that are all about uh, a business model. Do these 50 things and you will have all kinds of new guests and do these kind of things and you're going to have a retention uh, of X amount of people and you do these sing this kind of way with this kind of uh, people and develop, you know, have, have a building with these kind of lights and that, all these kind of things, and it's all about building a, or marketing a thing. And Jesus is still saying, listen, ultimately, you need to leave the results to me. Quit trying to manipulate the gospel as a package. And Jesus tells his disciples, he says, listen, if anyone will not receive you or listen to you, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave. It's a, a symbolic gesture indicating the severing of a relationship. And then it kind of goes even, even deeper, where Jesus makes this statement regarding God's future judgment. He tells the disciples that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Now, if you remember what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah, it was a total destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Total destruction. So why does Jesus talk about this? Why does he talk like this? It doesn't seem very seeker-friendly at all. Well, Jesus knows that their ministry, if it resembles his ministry, 
is going to receive a significant level of opposition. There's going to be rejection all over the place. And therefore, he wants them to know that one day, one day, God will make everything right. Nothing suffered. No level of rejection is ever going to be missed by God. He is watching. He's listening. He's with you in the rejection, the suffering, the persecution. One day he will, God will bring judgment on the world. And the disciples' role is simple. It is simply to go into the hostile world. A culture that is against the good news of Christ. Go into that world and all you are called to do is declare the good news of Jesus. That is your responsibility. And then what do you do? You leave the results to God. You trust Him that He is the great planter of seeds. And He is the one that is going to bring apart about this amazing harvest. All you are called to do is to go out into the fields. Trusting Him. Effective ministry at any level in this world requires a deep understanding of this principle. If you don't get this, you'll never make it. I barely made it through ministry. I I found myself wanting to quit because there's this idea that, man, your church, the people that you're gathering should have about five or six services. Right? You, You should be busting at the seams. You are going to be needing to buy a a warehouse where you can do light shows, big concerts, amazing, good-looking pastor with lots of charisma and talking points. There's points even in my ministry with you where I've gone... Just these? Why are we not busting at the seams, God? Am I missing out on some church growth principles? Maybe. But I believe that God is still calling us to declare the gospel. prepare people for ministry and leave the results to him. There is a natural tendency in my heart and maybe yours that connects results to a sense of value. Do you feel that? In your marriage, in your workplace, maybe even here? You connect uh, numbers nickels and noses, you connect all these things to your own sense of value of what you're doing. Maybe you you think it's normal to think of opposition or resistance or rejection and think that you're maybe doing something wrong. And Jesus wants us to look at ministry differently in, in, in a way that says, leave the results to me. And I'm not suggesting that we just arrogantly minister in a way that we never consider our effectiveness in in relationship to results. We should always be saying, how can we be doing this better? How can we be loving people or proclaiming or training or sending out people? We we need to be thinking about that. But 
Such over-spiritualization of bad ministry has caused just a, a needless harm on the name of Christ. Rather, I'm suggesting that there's got to be a balance between woe to you when people speak well of you. Luke 6. And Romans 12. As it depends on you, live peaceably with all. There's got to be that balance. So to effectively follow Jesus in our culture, in our time, you must have, I must have a robust and biblical understanding that Jesus calls us to be like him, to be gracious to him, and then ultimately leave all the results to him. We have to develop a level of freedom, a freedom from, from uh, results and consequences and leaving it ultimately in God's hands. This is his church, his bride. He loves this church, his people, who he's calling to him. He loves them. Trust him. And how valuable this kind of orientation is. It can liberate you when, as a teenager, your friends mock you because of your beliefs of what you will or will not do. Or, or a college student, when you spend maybe some lonely Friday nights alone because following Jesus won't allow you to follow the crowds. Or maybe as you parent, when, you, when your children don't like your decisions all the time, and they start to emotionally distance themselves from you. Or maybe as a person in the marketplace, when your conversations or actions attract the, the subtle kind of eye rolls or maybe even outright mocking from your coworkers because of your deep-held convictions. Where you say, no, actually, I believe that all of Scripture is God-breathed and therefore it is profitable. The whole Word of God speaks over all of creation, and it is true. It is infallible. It is without error, and it speaks into my family life. It, it speaks into my sexuality. It speaks into your sexuality. It speaks into our finances. I believe this to be true, and ultimately they look like, huh? Really? We need to be people who say, I am a follower of Christ. And it doesn't matter what you do. And it doesn't matter what I do. God is ultimately going to take care of it. So having established some basic three principles of how ministry is to be done, Jesus turns to some promises. And these are promises that we need to cling on to as we step into this uh, oppositional, kind of resistant kind of culture. And Jesus kind of expands on the conflict theme saying, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves and calling them to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. So Jesus is sending you out to be eaten alive. Get that picture? I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. What do wolves do with sheep? They don't cuddle with them. They're not looking for a warm, fuzzy experience. 
They don't cohabitate. It's violent. And so Jesus wants his followers to be people of unquestionable, uh, unquestionable kind of character and, and great wisdom because he's sending them out into a very difficult, rough kind of territory. To be sheep in the midst of wolves is not to be safe. Jesus wants his followers to be people of, that are willing to take these risks because they know that he is worth it. So to help his disciples, he gives them a series of promises. And here's the first one. The first promise is, when challenged, remember that God gives you the words to say. Even though I had a hard time pulling off that one sentence right there, God will give you the words to say. Following Jesus, you will follow, find yourself in the midst of opposition. They'll drag you into, into courts. They'll flog you into, in the synagogues, in the religious places. They'll drag you... Be, before governors and kings for the purpose of bearing witness uh, before them and the Gentiles. And when that day comes, there will be a tendency to be anxious. Thinking, what am I going to say in that moment? But in that moment, Jesus gives us all a promise. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. He promises that the Holy Spirit will speak through you. Now, a little caveat, that does not mean that you need to be, uh, well, that means I don't have to read the Bible, and I really don't have, God's still going to speak through me. No, it's often through the words of Scripture, our understanding. So we need to be educated, but we need to do trust that the Holy Spirit will speak through us, through us. So Jesus is promising that his disciples will not be abandoned in those absolutely critical moments. The Holy Spirit will provide believers what they need. For I will give you a mouth of wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to understand or contradict. That's Luke 21. I'm, I'm going to give you something in that moment. So trust me. Here's the second thing. When your family attacks... Remember the value of endurance. We see this in verses 21 and 22. Jesus indicates, some of you, we, I, I don't think that we really understand this. Some of you may have experienced family opposition to your faith. Some of you may have. Most of us come from kind of a general Christian background. And maybe you might get bumped up because you go to a church that meets for an hour and a half instead of an hour. But that's about the only opposition that you might get. Or maybe you attend a church that's a little bit more conservative than their parents. And, but that's really not opposition. Jesus says there's going to be seasons where family members are involved in persecution, delivering each other up to the, the authorities, even to the point of death. Do you know where we're seeing that today? We're seeing that in Afghanistan. Family members are delivering family members over to the authorities, even to the point of their death. The family unit completely breaks down, and the result is that followers of Jesus are hated. And the solution is to remember the value of spiritual endurance. The word for this word, uh, endurance in the Greek is hupomeno, 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 hupomeno. 
And it means to abide under, to bear up courageously. So under this extreme pressure that is coming from above, you are able to abide and to live underneath and courageously stand up. So how is this comforting? Well, Jesus reminds his followers that endurance until the end is central, a central part of being a disciple. He's calling them to bear up, to to abide underneath it courageously. And he's also telling them that everything, including the persecution of your family, has an end that ultimately leads to deliverance. It all works out for your good. Even betrayal by your family. Here's the third thing. When persecution comes, we need to remember that Jesus has also been there as well. The disciples are to go from town to town expecting persecution. He encourages his disciples by telling them that their suffering is directly connected to his own suffering. He, as their teacher, received persecution. So you know what? If I received, if you're to do ministry like me, and I received persecution, you too should expect it. In other words, some level of opposition is an affirmation that you really are a follower of Christ. There's a comfort in persecution knowing that it serves as a a validation, a badge. Now, let's not overly apply this, please, church, to vaccinations. Because many have called this whole COVID thing, well, we're being persecuted. And since we're being persecuted, we must be the true remnant to the true church. It has nothing to do with this. We're talking about a different kind of true persecution. To be liked by everyone, never facing any level of opposition, and to be affirmed by the world is not the calling of a disciple. Fourthly, when you are afraid of people, remember that one day everything will be revealed. I know this for myself. The fear of man, the fear of humanities and their responses and how they think of me is a powerful emotion. Opposition doesn't need to be active or specific for it to grab a hold of my heart. Just even the anticipation of opposition can be enough to lock me up emotionally and spiritually. Anybody have that? It's like, oh, what's going to happen? I'm getting wet hands, sweaty armpits. Oh, man, this, I, I, I anticipate it, and it just shuts me down. Proverbs wisely says that the fear of man is actually a snare. It's a snare. So what what is Jesus' remedy? Well, he points to the final judgment as a source of hope 
and a source of strength. He says, one day, everything that was hidden or covered will be revealed. In other words, God sees it all, He knows it all, and He will one day make all things plain. He'll make all motives, all words, and all actions of those who oppose the followers of Jesus will be made plain and clear. In other words, judgment and vindication is going to be guaranteed. So even if we are afraid of people, just know that one day, God's going to make it clear. Here's here's the fifth one. When you are tempted to be timid, remember that eternity is on the line. This, I think, is extremely important. Jesus calls his followers not to conceal who they are or to conceal their message. We're pretty good at that, aren't we? Be honest. We're pretty good at concealing our message or who we are. In fact... I'm willing to bet that if you would follow me around on a given day, you would see that as I go into Starbucks, they know me by name. But I'm pretty sure that not all of them, most of them, have heard the message of hope. They may know me by my vocation, but not by my profession. And I think that's true for all of us. We are to be people who take this message of the good news of Jesus Christ. And we are to declare it openly. Timidity should not be our norm. Jesus wants bold, compassionate messengers with a bold, powerful and beautiful message of hope. And when there's a temptation to be concerned about what people can do, what they can take away, or the punishment that they can produce, Jesus wants his disciples to keep in mind that eternal issues are actually at stake. Their view of life, their sense of fear, their motivation for boldness needs to be different because of what is at stake. And you can see that clearly. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body. Don't be afraid of that. Number six, when you are filled with anxiety, remember that you are valuable to God. Moments of opposition can create a high degree of anxiety where we worry about the future. There's a temptation to doubt God's care or to be fearful as to what's going to happen. And in some respects, this is normal and this is a natural kind of initial thought. But when anxiety kicks in to control our thoughts or our behaviors, new beliefs need to kick in in high gear. And what are those new beliefs? Well, basically, there's three. The first is, God cares for the slightest and the smallest of creatures. You are more valuable 
than, than sparrows. And sparrows are loved. They're, they're part of God's creation. I don't understand that because growing up on a farm, these uh, English sparrows would just carry fleas and they were just mangy kind of things. But God cares for them. They're valuable to him. So God loves and cares for them by God. Uh, God loves and cares for them, but we are more valuable than those sparrows. Secondly, God knows every person intimately. He knows, and some of you should be far more, uh, take far more peace and happiness in this. He knows you intimately. He even knows the number of hairs on your head. Some of you are just thick. Zach, beautiful. Look at all that hair. God knows every beard hair that Zach has. Guys, some of you have amazing back hair. God knows every single one of those. But he knows me intimately as well. Praise God, right, Kenny? Yeah. You know, those of us who have, he knows every single hair. And when a hair drops, he knows it. So God says, listen, when you're filled with anxiety, just remember, you are valuable. So valuable, I I count your hair. But then we also need to remember that he just loves us deeply. So anxiety is battled not by denying the reality of the situation, because that situation is absolutely real. It's at hand. But what we do is we ultimately eclipse that anxiety by belief in who God is and how much he loves us. Namely, God loves you. He cares for you. And he will. He will meet your needs. And here's the last one. When following him is costly, remember that nothing is greater than the affirmation of Jesus. One of my love languages, and if you come up afterwards and start using this too much, I'm going to call you out because it's kind of freaky when people overdo it. One of my love languages is words of affirmation. When a person genuinely comes up to me and just say, brother, that was really good. Or you really, you really cared for me. Or you this, that, the other thing. My heart, my heart kind of grows. And this final promise of uh, we need to remember that there is nothing greater than the affirmation of Jesus. This is the kind of the capstone of all of the promises. Jesus tells us that there's a direct connection between our acknowledgement of him and his acknowledgement of us. A denial of Jesus equals a denial of us. Affirmation of Jesus equals an affirmation of us. So why is the affirmation of Jesus listed as as a motivator? The reason is that his affirmation is directly connected. His words of life spoken to us, that you are mine, you are my beloved. Those words are directly connected to one's eternal destiny. 
To be a sinful person in the presence of a holy God means certain judgment and certain punishment. You can hardly imagine the fear associated with this kind of situation. So the only hope of standing before God is having this advocacy of Jesus. Jesus saying to the Father, He's one. He's one of us. He has been purchased by the blood of the Lamb. He's, he's, he's my child. He's my brother. He, he's saved. Jesus doesn't affirm you as one of His and then just say, let you stand condemned, guilty, and damned. No, to say to have Jesus say he's one of mine is not the difference between the A team and the B team. It's the difference between life and the difference between death, hell and heaven, eternal joy and everlasting punishment. That's the good news. Having those words spoken over to you in the midst of persecution, in the midst of difficulty, he's saying, you are mine. So when things get tough, you've got to remember that following Jesus is not just uh, one path among many. It's the only path. Because there is nothing more important than this. Nothing. Towards the end of Jesus' ministry, the Gospel of John kind of records this, this conversation between Jesus and Peter. And many disciples had left. They kind of said, no way, this, this is not what I signed up for. And Jesus asked Peter, are you going to leave too? And Peter's response captures well the reality of what is on the line any time that following Jesus is costly. Any time that we ask the question, is it worth following Jesus? And I pray that this will be your response as well. Peter said, where are we going to go? Where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. And we know that you are the Holy One from God. Even in the midst of persecution and pain, sorrow and loss, we need to be able to say, Lord, where else would I go? You're my only hope. You, you have purchased me. You've redeemed me. You've shown grace and mercy. While I was yet a sinner, you died for me. Where else would I go? The world offers me nothing but brief joys. You offer me life. Life abundantly. You offer me security and hope. You are the balm for my grieving soul. Where else would I I go. So brothers and sisters, the answer is yes. Is Jesus worth following? Yes. Because there is no one else like him. Amen? Let's pray.
Lord, there is none other like you, and you are worth it. I pray, Lord, that our hearts will grow and have a type of affection for you that causes us to go out into a world that is hostile, often hostile to the gospel. May we go out in the reality of what this ministry will look like, but may we also go out clinging to these promises. And Lord, may we be like Peter, who answered, where else would we go, Lord? Where else would we go? Help us to grow in our faith, our confidence in the gospel. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.